0: Volume One, Chapter Six of *The Marble Fawn*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. *The Marble Fawn* by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Volume One, Chapter Six, *The Virgin's Shrine* after donatello had left the studio miriam herself came forth and taking her way through some of the intricacies of the city entered what might be called either a widening of a street or a small piazza the neighborhood comprised a baker's oven emitting the usual fragrance of sour bread a shoe shop a linen-draper's shop a pipe and cigar shop a lottery office a station for french soldiers with a sentinel pacing in front, and a fruit-stand at which a Roman matron was selling the dried kernels of chestnuts, wretched little figs, and some bouquets of yesterday. A church, of course, was near at hand, the façade of which ascended into lofty pinnacles, whereon were perched two or three winged figures of stone, either angelic or allegorical, blowing stone trumpets in close vicinity to the upper windows of an old and shabby palace this palace was distinguished by a feature not very common in the architecture of roman edifices that is to say a medieval tower square massive lofty and battlemented and machicolated at the summit at one of the angels of the battlements stood the shrine of the virgin such as we see everywhere at the street-corners of Rome, but seldom or never, except in this solitary instance, at a height above the ordinary level of men's views and aspirations. Connected with this old tower and its lofty shrine, there is a legend, which we cannot here pause to tell, but for centuries a lamp has been burning before the Virgin's image, at noon, at midnight, and at all hours of the twenty-four, and must be kept burning for ever, as long as the tower shall stand, or else the tower itself, the palace, and whatever estate belongs to it, shall pass from its hereditary possessor, in accordance with an ancient vow, and become the property of the church. As Miriam approached, she looked upward, and saw, not indeed the flame of the never-dying lamp, which was swallowed up in the broad sunlight that brightened the shrine but a flock of white doves skimming fluttering and wheeling about the topmost height of the tower their silver wings flashing in the pure transparency of the air several of them sat on the ledge of the upper window pushing one another off by their eager struggle for this favorite station and all tapping their beaks and flapping their wings tumultuously against the panes some had alighted in the street far below but flew hastily upward at the sound of the window being thrust ajar and opening in the middle on rusty hinges as roman windows do a fair young girl dressed in white showed herself at the aperture for a single instant and threw forth as much as her two small hands could hold of some kind of food "'for the flock of eleemosynary doves. "'It seemed greatly to the taste of the feathered people, "'for they tried to snatch beakfuls of it from her grasp, "'caught it in the air, "'and rushed downward after it upon the pavement. "'What a pretty scene this is!' "'thought Miriam, with a kindly smile. "'And how like a dove she is herself, "'the fair, pure creature. "'The other doves know her for a sister, I am sure.' miriam passed beneath the deep portal of the palace and turning to the left began to mount flight after flight of a staircase which for the loftiness of its aspiration was worthy to be jacob's ladder or at all events the staircase of the tower of babel the city bustle which is heard even in rome the rumble of wheels over the uncomfortable paving-stones the hard harsh cries re-echoing in the high and narrow streets, grew faint and died away, as the turmoil of the world will always die if we set our faces to climb heavenward. Higher and higher still, and now glancing through the successive windows that threw in their narrow light upon the stairs, her view stretched across the roofs of the city, unimpeded even by the stateliest palaces only the domes of churches ascend into this airy region and hold up their golden crosses on a level with her eye except that out of the very heart of rome the column of antonius thrusts itself upward with st paul upon its summit the sole human form that seems to have kept her company finally the staircase came to an end save that on one side of the little entry where it terminated A flight of a dozen steps gave access to the roof of the tower and the legendary shrine. On the other side was a door, at which Miriam knocked, but rather as a friendly announcement of her presence than with any doubt of hospitable welcome, for, awaiting no response, she lifted the latch and entered. "'What a hermitage you have found for yourself, dear Hilda!' she exclaimed. You breathe sweet air above all the evil sense of Rome, and even so, in your maiden elevation, you dwell above our vanities and passions, our moral dust and mud, with the doves and the angels for your nearest neighbours. I should not wonder if the Catholics were to make a saint of you, like your namesake of old, especially as you have almost avowed yourself to their religion by undertaking to keep the lamp alight before the virgin's shrine. "'No, no, Miriam,' said Hilda, who had come joyfully forward to greet her friend, "'you must not call me a Catholic. A Christian girl, even a daughter of the Puritans, may surely pay honour to the idea of divine womanhood, without giving up the faith of her forefathers. But how kind you are to climb into my dovecot!' it is no trifling proof of friendship indeed answered miriam i should think there were three hundred stairs at least but it will do you good continued hilda at height of some fifty feet above the roofs of rome gives me all the advantages that i could get from fifty miles of distance the air so exhilarates my spirits that sometimes i feel half inclined To attempt a flight from the top of my tower in the faith that i should float upward oh pray don't try it said miriam laughing if it should turn out that you are less than an angel you would find the stones of the roman pavement very hard and if an angel indeed i'm afraid you would never come down among us again this young american girl was an example of the freedom of life which it is possible for a female artist to enjoy at rome she dwelt in her tower as free to descend into the corrupted atmosphere of the city beneath as one of her companion doves to fly downward into the street all alone perfectly independent under her own sole guardianship unless watched over by the virgin whose shrine she tended doing what she liked without a suspicion or a shadow upon the snowy whiteness of her fame the customs of artist life bestow such liberty upon the sex which is elsewhere restricted within so much narrower limits and it is perhaps an indication that whenever we admit women to a wider scope of pursuits and professions we must also remove the shackles of our present conventional rules which would then become an insufferable restraint on either maid or wife the system seems to work unexceptionably in rome and in many other cases as in hilda's purity of heart and life are allowed to assert themselves and to be their own proof and security to a degree unknown in the society of other cities Hilda, in her native land, had early shown what was pronounced by connoisseurs a decided genius for the pictorial art. Even in her school days, still not so very distant, she had produced sketches that were seized upon by men of taste, and hoarded as among the choicest treasures of their portfolios, scenes delicately imagined, lacking, perhaps, the reality which comes only from a close acquaintance with life but so softly touched with feeling and fancy that you seem to be looking at humanity with angels eyes with years and experience she might be expected to attain a darker and more forcible touch which would impart to her designs the relief they needed had hilda remained in her own country it is not improbable that she might have produced original works worthy to hang in that gallery of native art which we hope is destined to extend its rich length through many future centuries an orphan however without near relatives and possessed of a little property she had found it within her possibilities to come to italy that central clime with the eyes and the heart of every artist turn as if pictures could not be made to glow in any other atmosphere as if statues could not assume grace and expression, save in that land of whitest marble, Hilda's gentle courage had brought her safely over land and sea. Her mild, unflagging perseverance had made a place for her in the famous city, even like a flower that finds a chink for itself, and a little earth to grow in, on whatever ancient wall its slender root may fasten here she dwelt in her tower possessing a friend or two in rome but no home companion except the flock of doves whose cot was in a ruinous chamber contiguous to her own they soon became as familiar with the fair-haired saxon girl as if she were a born sister of their broad and her customary white robe bore such an analogy to their snowy plumage that the confraternity of artists called her hilda the dove and recognized her aerial apartments as the Dovecot. and while the other doves flew far and wide in quest of what was good for them hilda likewise spread her wings and sought such ethereal and imaginative sustenance as god ordains for creatures of her kind we know not whether the result of her italian studies so far as it could yet be seen will be accepted as a good or desirable one certain it is that since her arrival in the pictorial land hilda seemed to have entirely lost the impulse of original design which brought her thither no doubt the girl's early dreams had been of sending forms and hues of beauty into the visible world out of her own mind of compelling scenes of poetry and history to live before men's eyes through conceptions, and by methods individual to herself. But more and more as she grew familiar with the miracles of art that enriched so many galleries in Rome, Hilda had ceased to consider herself as an original artist. No wonder that this change should have befallen her. She was endowed with a deep and sensitive faculty of appreciation. She had the gift of discerning and worshipping excellence in a most unusual measure. No other person, it is probable, recognized so adequately and enjoyed with such deep delight the pictorial wonders that were here displayed. She saw, no, not saw, but felt through and through a picture. She bestowed upon it all the warmth and richness of a woman's sympathy, not by any intellectual effort. But by this strength of heart, and this guiding light of sympathy, she went straight to the central point in which the master had conceived his work. Thus she viewed it, as it were, with his own eyes, and hence her comprehension of any picture that interested her was perfect. This power and depth of appreciation depended partly upon Hilda's physical organization which was at once healthful and exquisitely delicate and connected with this advantage she had a command of hand a nicety and force of touch which is an endowment separate from pictorial genius though indispensable to its exercise it has probably happened in many other instances as it did in hilda's case that she ceased to aim at original achievement in consequence of the very gifts which so exquisitely fitted her to profit by familiarity with the works of the mighty old masters reverencing these wonderful men so deeply she was too grateful for all they bestowed upon her too loyal too humble in their awful presence to think of enrolling herself in their society beholding the miracles of beauty which they had achieved, the world seemed already rich enough in original designs, and nothing more was so desirable as to diffuse those self-same beauties more widely among mankind. All the youthful hopes and ambitions, the fanciful ideas which she had brought from home, of great pictures to be conceived in her feminine mind, were flung aside, and, so far as those most intimate with her could discern relinquished without a sigh all that she would henceforth attempt and that most reverently not to say religiously was to catch and reflect some of the glory which had been shed upon canvas from immortal pencils of old so hilda became a copyist in the pinatotheca of the vatican in the galleries of the pamphili doria palace the borghese the corsini the schiara her easel was set up before many a famous picture by guido dominicino Raphael, and the devout painters of earlier schools than these other artists and visitors from foreign lands beheld the slender girlish figure in front of some world-known work, absorbed unconscious of everything around her seeming to live only in what she sought to do They smiled, no doubt, at the audacity which led her to dream of copying those mighty achievements. But if they paused to look over her shoulder, and had sensibility enough to understand what was before their eyes, they soon felt inclined to believe that the spirits of the old masters were hovering over Hilda and guiding her delicate white hand. In truth, from whatever realm of bliss and many-colored beauty those spirits might descend, it would have been no unworthy errand to help so gentle and pure a worshipper of their genius in giving the last divine touch to repetitions of their works her copies were indeed marvellous accuracy was not the phrase for them a chinese copy is accurate hilda's had that evanescent and ethereal life that flitting fragrance as it were of the originals which it is as difficult to catch and retain as it would be for a sculptor to get the very movement and varying color of a living man into his marble bust. Only by watching the efforts of the most skilful copyists, men who spend a lifetime, as some of them do, in multiplying copies of a single picture, and observing how invariably they leave out just the indefinable charm that involves the last inestimable value can we understand the difficulties of the task which they undertake. It was not Hilda's general practice to attempt reproducing the whole of a great picture, but to select some high, noble, and delicate portion of it, in which the spirit and essence of the picture culminated. The Virgin's celestial sorrow, for example, or a hovering angel, imbued with immortal light, or a saint with the glow of heaven in his dying face and these would be rendered with her whole soul if a picture had darkened into an indistinct shadow through time and neglect or had been injured by cleaning or retouched by some profane hand she seemed to possess the faculty of seeing it in its pristine glory the copy would come from her hands with what the beholder felt must be the light which the old master had left upon the original in bestowing his final and most ethereal touch in some instances even at least so those believed who best appreciated hilda's power and sensibility she had been enabled to execute what the great masters had conceived in his imagination but had not so perfectly succeeded in putting upon canvas. A result surely not impossible, when such depth of sympathy as she possessed was assisted by the delicate skill and accuracy of her slender hand. In such cases the girl was but a finer instrument, a more exquisitely effective piece of mechanism, by the help of which the spirit of some great departed painter now first achieved his ideal centuries after his own earthly hand that other tool had turned to dust not to describe her as too much a wonder however hilda or the dove as her well-wishers half laughingly delighted to call her had been pronounced by good judges incomparably the best copyist in rome after minute examination of her works the most skilful artist declared that she had been led results by following precisely the same process step by step through which the original painter had trodden to the development of his idea. Other copyists, if such, they are worthy to be called, attempt only a superficial imitation. Copies of the old masters in this sense are produced by thousands. There are artists, as we have said, who spend their lives in painting the works of perhaps one single work of one illustrious painter over and over again thus they convert themselves into guido machines or raphaelic machines their performances it is true are often wonderfully deceptive to a careless eye but working entirely from the outside and seeking only to reproduce the surface these men are sure to leave out that indefinable nothing that inestimable something that constitutes the life and soul through which the picture gets its immortality. Hilda was no such machine as this. She wrought religiously, and therefore wrought a miracle. It strikes us that there is something far higher and nobler in all this, in her thus sacrificing herself to the devout recognition of the highest excellence in art, then there would have been in cultivating her not inconsiderable share of talent for the production of works from her own ideas. She might have set up for herself, and won no ignoble name, she might have helped to fill the already crowded and cumbered world with pictures, not destitute of merit, but falling short, if by ever so little, of the best that has been done. She might thus have gratified some tastes that were incapable of appreciating Raphael, but this could be done only by lowering the standard of art to the comprehension of the spectator. She chose the better and loftier and more unselfish part, laying her individual hopes, her fame, her prospects of enduring remembrance, at the feet of those great departed ones whom she so loved and venerated and therefore the world was the richer for this feeble girl. Since the beauty and glory of a great picture are confined within itself, she won out that glory by patient faith and self-devotion, and multiplied it for mankind. From the dark, chill corner of a gallery, from some curtained chapel in a church, where the light came seldom and aslant from the prince's carefully gardened cabinet, where not one eye in thousands was permitted to behold it, she brought the wondrous picture into daylight, and gave all its magic splendor for the enjoyment of the world. Hilda's faculty of genuine admiration is one of the rarest to be found in human nature, and let us try to recompense her in kind by admiring her generous self-surrender and her brave, humble magnanimity in choosing to be the handmaid of those old magicians, instead of a minor enchantress within a circle of her own. The handmaid of Raphael, whom she loved with a virgin's love, would it have been worth Hilda's while to relinquish this office for the sake of giving the world a picture or two which it would call original? Pretty fancies of snow and moonlight, the counterpart in picture of so many feminine achievements in literature. End of Chapter Six, Volume One, read by Lars Rolander.